Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, you can begin flipping to the New Testament book of Acts and chapter 5 this morning. Um, October is always a very special month for me and for uh, our family. Um, I'm very grateful to all of you. Well, first of all, I'm grateful to whoever it was who thought that October should be Pastor Appreciation Month, some very kind soul. Um, But you guys have always done an incredible job of just appreciating me and us, and I'm very grateful to all of you who have showered us with a variety of gifts. Um, The gift cards to the restaurants are very appreciated. We have lots of fun eating out. And uh, so just thank you for the way that you love us. I am grateful to be a part of this church family with you. Um, October is also special for us because, as you recall, just a couple short weeks ago, mid-October, we get to celebrate our church's anniversary, and so we celebrated two years just two weekends ago. Um, October is also special for us because it is our wedding anniversary, October 26, 2012. We got married, and so Alana and I celebrated nine years of wedded bliss uh, this week. Um, If you didn't know, a little trivia about us, we got married here in Brevard County up in Titusville, and uh, October 26, 2012 is also famous because it's the day that Hurricane Sandy hit Brevard County on its way up to wiping out New Jersey, and so we, of course, got married outside during the hurricane. Um, so we got all the challenges and the difficulties of married life out of the way up front on our wedding day, and it's been absolutely spectacular ever since. That really is true. Um, we come this morning to Acts chapter 5, though, um, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, another marriage, not quite as wedded bliss, not quite as great as at least Alana and I's has been. The story of Ananias and Sapphira is a curious Uh, It is an alarming story. It is the story of a husband and wife who together uh, decide collectively to sin, and they sin against the Lord, and for their sin, they immediately drop dead. Good morning. How are you this morning, right? (laughs) Um, Acts 5 is very unique. It is very true. We should not shy away from the reality of Acts chapter 5. It is certainly very sobering a passage, and the Bible actually tells us here, as we'll read in a minute, that It struck fear into the heart of the church, certainly, Uh, and it should in some sense do that for us as well. It is certainly a reminder for us today that sin is serious and that we need and we have an amazing Savior in Jesus Christ. So again, if you have your Bible, let's look to Acts chapter 5. I'm going to read this passage. It is verses 1 through 11 here this morning. Hear now the Word of God. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. That's a nice way of saying, he gone. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. I have no idea why it was the young men who got stuck with burial duty that day, but Young men, you're on alert. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. 
But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Thus far, the reading of God's Word this morning, let's take a minute and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You even for sobering, somewhat terrifying passages like this. And God, we approach them as we hope to every week, Lord, with humility and Father, with a recognition that we have a great problem in sin and we have a greater Savior in Jesus Christ. And so would you speak to us about those realities this morning? Lord, move in our hearts, change our lives in a fresh way this morning. We thank you that Jesus has the power to change the world. We pray that you might begin that work afresh in us this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Three applications this morning as we walk through the life, and albeit the death, of Ananias and Sapphira. How do we apply this curious story to us this morning? Number one is this, the real heart. I want us to think about the real heart. And sort of a subset of that is we're going to see the difference between real and fake hearts or real and fake generosity is the particular aspect taking place here. The real heart. In order for us to really understand the brokenness and the tragedy of what just happened here in Acts 5, 1 through 11, we need to go back to the end of Acts chapter 4, the immediately preceding verses, and see how Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is explaining to us a bigger picture. We get at the end of Acts chapter 4 this beautiful snapshot of the church, and that's what we looked at last week. But I want to begin our time now this morning by rereading the last several verses of Acts chapter 4 to pair it with what we have just seen in Acts chapter 5. The Bible says this about the church of Jesus Christ, verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now listen to this particular example in verse 36 and 37. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, as we saw last week, the gospel always resurrects spiritually dead hearts to life. And when Jesus Christ fills us by his Holy Spirit, it empowers us among many wonderful things, this passage says, to be filled with a new spirit and heart of unity, of generosity, and of testimony, testifying about Jesus Christ. And so we're finding here that the heartbeat of the church was that everything I have is actually a gift from God. Therefore, I will seize the moment, and with every breath that I have in my life, I will use it to give back to God and to others what He has so wonderfully given to me in the first place. And so Barnabas is a guy who really helps start a revolution within the church of genuine generosity, a heart for genuine generosity. 
Every time that we meet Barnabas in the book of Acts, and there will be several more moments, he is always helping someone. He is always serving someone, and he is always sharing the gospel with someone. It begins here at the end of Acts chapter 4 when he sells a piece of land that he owned and he gave the proceeds to benefit others in need, and that was driven by a heart of thankfulness for God's generosity. Notice here further the character of what a, a godly man can and should involve. Barnabas is not the one telling us about his act of generosity. He is not grandstanding or telling us about himself. He also did not give himself the nickname son of encouragement, right? That was given to him. That would roughly be the equivalent of buying for yourself the world's greatest boss mug, right? He is not glorifying himself. The reality is rather the opposite, that people are seeing a life changed by Jesus. People are seeing other lives impacted by him, and it makes them want to go and do the same thing. And Luke is reporting what a life changed by Jesus begins to look like. Barnabas shows us a little bit of a picture of what it means to follow hard after Jesus when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify you. No, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Barnabas does an incredible job here. But then we see the flip side in Acts chapter 5, what is really a fake generosity. So you can imagine the happy couple is hanging out after church. They grab a last-minute donut and a little bit more coffee, and they realize that this guy Barnabas, who's over here in the front of the room, is getting a lot of attention. And they start to think in their own hearts, man, we'd like to get attention like Barnabas. We'd love to have that kind of applause. Or maybe it went a little deeper, man, I'd love to feel that level of acceptance, the way that Barnabas seems to be uh, being accepted by others within the church. See, every single one of us is born with a pride issue in our hearts that naturally seeks our glory rather than God's glory. And when Christ comes into our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, we come to realize what a waste of time that is and how we actually experience true glory when we tap into His glory and reflect, become a mirror to reflect it back to Him. You know, sometimes we can do some really terrible things in our lives to try and gain attention, and I think that's kind of what's going on here. I would assume for Ananias and Sapphira that they had some mixed motives. There was a sense of genuineness that, yes, they wanted to care for others, but at the same time, after they sold this field, they began to shift their focus. And you can imagine the money being in their hands. Maybe their focus became less and less on the God of generosity, and they began to look at that money and think, this is a lot of money. Or maybe their focus became less and less on the God of generosity who had given it to them, and they began to focus on, man, we got a lot of bills that we need to pay. Maybe we should keep some of this back. But they lost sight of the mission of generosity because they lost sight of the Savior who had shown them generosity. The sin here is not in whether or not they should have given some or all of what they had. The sin here is spiritual deception. They lied, and they said, guys, look at us. We're giving everything, while in reality they kept a portion of it back. Lying, exaggerating, half-truths, broken promises, this is a story for the church at large today in 2021 as well as it was back then. 
It can manifest itself in a variety of different ways. It can be the heartbeat that says, watch me as I worship passionately on Sunday morning, but throughout the remainder of the week, I in no way have a desire to make Christ the Lord of my life. In fact, you would characterize my life as as being in utter rebellion towards Him. Or watch me as I talk a big game about caring for others, but the reality of my day-to-day life is I'm far more consumed about my own comforts. Or I'm the person who's very happy to give unsolicited advice to someone else about how you should begin to live your life, but the truth is I have in my own heart no desire to worship, to grow, to serve, or to reach out with the love of Christ. It is the sin of spiritual deception. Pastor Kent Hughes in his commentary on Acts in chapter 5 describes what's happening here as this, pious pretense, religious sham, simulated holiness, Christian fraud. The issue is the outward appearance versus the inward heart. The Scripture has a lot to say about that, doesn't it? We saw during the summer, 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7 Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Where is your heart this morning is the first thing that we can take away from the life and death of Ananias and Sapphira. Number two, though, when Peter responds, he gives us really our second application, the truth about sin. Number two is the truth about sin, and we see this in particular in Peter's responses to Ananias and Sapphira in verses 3 and 4 and later on in verse 9. Peter tells them this, you could have just kept the money and it would have been fine. There would have been no sin. What they could have done and probably should have done was this, say, we were going to give everything, but after reconsidering or after praying, we've decided to keep this amount and we've decided to donate this amount. That would have been very fine. And Peter makes that completely clear. He says, it was yours. You owned it. You didn't have to sell it, and you didn't have to donate it. The problem is your hypocrisy. The problem is your deception. And guys, the reality is that hypocrisy and deception in a believer's life, in the life of the church, in the life of a believing family, brings destruction. One of the primary reasons that we live in a season among generations where we see the younger generation walking out of the church is because of our hypocrisy, is because of our deception. Children in particular are very wise and they are very discerning and they see through when we say one thing and we do another. And the Lord steps on our toes here a little bit in a profound and an important way. Peter goes on a little bit further, though. He brings up Satan. Peter says that they have been filled with Satan's lies. Acts thus far has discussed the reality of being filled with the Holy Spirit, that when you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, at that moment, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit for life, and the command then is to be filled. The manifestation of being filled by the Holy Spirit is to boldly share the good news of the gospel. And here he says, you have been filled with Satan's lies. This is a reminder to us, guys, that Satan's attacks are real. Spiritual warfare is real. Certainly temptation is real. 
Peter, in his book, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Happy Halloween. Do not trivialize Satan. Do not glorify evil. Now, we will walk around our neighborhood this evening and we will get some candy. And we will experience the consequences of getting that candy for days ahead. We look forward to that. But I am just reminding you, do not trivialize or glorify evil. Satan is real and Satan hates the gospel. Satan hates Jesus. Satan hates generosity. Satan hates honesty. And he hates you if you follow Jesus. Satan attacks those who are a threat, and so for those of us who are sitting on the sideline, he will not waste much time, but as you step into following Christ, expect the attacks to increase. Satan's first attempt to stop the message of salvation we've already seen was persecution. I will push evil people to push back against the gospel, but it had the opposite effect we've already seen. Thousands of believers are coming to faith in Christ, and so now Satan moves from external attacks to internal attacks. Let me begin to twist the hearts of believers inside the church. Let me stir up jealousy. Let me stir up disunity. Let me stir up arrogance. Let me stir up lies. But here is the deeper reality. We have the power to resist and defeat Satan already. He has already lost. Jesus has already won, and we are on Jesus' side. Okay, so the devil made me do it. It's a terrible excuse. It's not true. He didn't, and he can't, and he won't. Do not blame shift and push it over to him. Here's why. Satan's not God. He's not God. Satan is not God-like either, so you can resist him. God, give you the three big O's, God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. That is all-knowing, everywhere, and all-powerful. Satan is exactly none of these. Satan is much more like us. He doesn't know everything. He can only be one place at one time, and he is not that powerful. And you see here the believers use unity, generosity, and talking about Jesus and his good news that Jesus saves sinners to break the chains that Satan lives to put in place around our world. The Bible says this, James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, and he, Jesus, said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Far more importantly, though, yes, you could have kept the money. Yes, Satan has done his thing. But the most important reality that Peter tells them and us is that sin is serious because sin is a personal offense against God. Peter says, you have not lied to men, but to God. What a sobering reality. Do not think, brothers and sisters, that your sin is just against another person. It is, but it is so much more. Do not think, and this is maybe the lie that we more often think, my sin is personal. It doesn't affect anyone else. Do not believe those lies. God 
ended the lives of Ananias and Sapphira on the spot because they lied personally to him. This is a reality check for all of us in this room and around the world. All of humanity deserves God's punishment for sin. All of humanity deserves judgment, justice, and hell, which is a real place. Men and women, kids, adults, black, white, Hispanic, rich, and poor, all of humanity, even one sin separates us eternally from God. Thank God that's not the end of the sermon. Romans 6.23, for the wages or payment of sin is death. Comma, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You may be listening to this passage here this morning and you have a very honest, genuine question, which is, is God going to strike me dead today right now if I tell a lie? No, most likely not. How do we know? Well, because the sobering reality is that any one sin is worthy of punishment and death. And I don't know about you, but I sin every day. I sin every hour, and God has not to this point zapped me. Why? Look again. This is 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is God's mercy. We don't get what we deserve. This is God's grace that we get what we don't deserve. So why did Ananias and Sapphira die immediately for the sin of lying to God? The Bible doesn't tell us. It does not give us a reason to distinguish why it happened in that moment and it doesn't happen for me today. What the Scripture does tell us over and over and over is that we can be honest with the God of this universe about our sin, that we can come to Him in a spirit of humility and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, that we can come to Him in repentance and say, I don't want to live that way anymore and I know that if I keep trying to do it on my own, nothing is going to change So, Lord Jesus, come and change my life. Save me. That is what the Scripture is crystal clear about. And that brings us to the third reality application that we take from this passage this morning. Number three, the one, the one who gives us hope. There is one and only one who gives us hope. Verse 11 again says that great fear fell on the whole church. Guys, God's judgment should should lead us to fear, particularly if we are not sure where we stand in relationship to Him. But fear also means respect as it relates to God. It means facing the reality of God's holiness and justice and not just sweeping it under the rug to deal with it at another time. Do you know that this passage is the first passage in all of the book of Acts and really in the New Testament where believers are called the church? This is the first time we get the word church, not a building, but a people. 
It is the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia, that we are the ekklesia. And that Greek word literally means the called out ones. The church is those who have been called out. 1 Peter, again, chapter 2 and verse 9 tells us what that means, that we have been called out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That is what it means to be the church, not to be perfect, not to impress people, not to have the need to create one image of who I am and another reality behind, but that we have been called out of darkness by His grace and mercy. Our lives have been changed. We have been moved from death to life. We are the called out ones. As here's the reality, this may shock you, but our church is not perfect. What? New City Church is not perfect. The church, capital C, of Jesus Christ around the world is not perfect. There is no perfect church. If you go there, if you find one, I should say, don't go because you'll mess it up. There is no perfect church. Even this, the first generation church led by the apostles, is filled with people like Ananias and Sapphira, who we think from Scripture probably were believers, but they sinned. I expect to see them in heaven one day, but they made a huge mistake here. Are there hypocrites in the church today? Well, there's at least one because I am standing here, right? We are hypocrites. That is why we need the gospel of grace, and by the power of His Holy Spirit, He changes us and moves us to be something that we could never be on our own. But guys, this passage calls us to examine our hearts. This scripture calls us to ask real questions about ourselves. Am I truthful? Do my actions and my words match up? Do I exaggerate? Do I brag? Do I promise to do something and then not do it? Do I shy away from actual service or actual generosity? Do I shift blame towards other people? Or am I constantly blaming God in one way or another? Or am I trying to gain acceptance by pretending to be someone that I'm not? Am I living in light of Jesus, perfect righteousness given to me, or am I still trying to hack it with my own broken, fake self-righteousness? We should consider our kids this morning who are here with us even in the room presently. Kids, listen to me. Lying is serious. You understand that? Lying is serious business. Why? Because God is a God of perfect truth. God doesn't lie. God never lies. And parents, grandparents, mentors, we must teach our kids rigorous honesty and rigorous grace. We must teach our kids rigorous truth and rigorous forgiveness because God is a God of justice and mercy. God is a God of truth and forgiveness. He does both perfectly. If we just demand that our kids be honest and they don't understand the reality of the gospel, that they will inevitably lie at one point or another, and that they need Jesus who changes hearts permanently, who forgives people when they lie. Jesus forgives me when I lie should be the mantra and the reality of parents as they teach their kids. 
I want us to end by just focusing on uh, another passage that, that plays this out so beautifully. This is 1 John chapter 1. And 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, give us a, a far better sermon than I could ever offer to you this morning. The scripture says this, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. John is telling us what Peter is telling us, what Luke is telling us, what the Word of God is telling us, that only Jesus can solve the seriousness of my sin. Only Jesus can solve the seriousness of the sin of the world, of the church, of every person seated here this morning, because there is one who never lied. Do you know that? Jesus never lied. There is one who never exaggerated. Jesus never faked it. There is one who actually came through and did what he said he was going to do. Only one. There is only one who was tempted for 40 days in the desert by Satan and who rejected Satan and his lies by clinging to God's faithful promises. There is one whose generosity and self-sacrifice lived up to the promise. He gave up his life for us. You understand that? Jesus died the death that we deserved to die. One final death to bring about the death of death that we might all be dead to sin, says Scripture, and one resurrection from the dead, that Jesus rose from the dead so that all who believe in Him might follow with Him to be risen to new life, not temporary life, but eternal life. To one day be in a place called heaven where there will be no more lying, there will be no more sin, there will be no more sadness. And so the Bible here is clear, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Turn from the darkness to the marvelous light of His grace by simply coming to Him to confess, to be honest, no longer hiding and trying to pretend like the problems that I have, I don't really have. But Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. Forgive me, and He will forgive you. He will give you new life. Believer, if you have stumbled yet again back into sin, as we all have, if you have stumbled into great sin, 1 John is for you this morning. Confess your sin and turn back to Him, and remember His grace for you is unchanged. And if you've never experienced salvation and new life in Jesus, then let today be the day that you offer up that, that simple prayer. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Give me new life. Change my life. Give me Jesus. Save me. Let's take a minute and let's pray together right now to that good and loving Savior.